we have a common saying in common American English that goes like this. If it looks like a duck, if it walks like a duck, if it quacks like a duck, it's a buffalo. No, it's a duck, right? You've heard this saying. You may have used it. We use that saying in common English communication to talk about how the characteristics of something reveal what that something is. And this is especially true when it comes to living things. Living beings have visible characteristics that help us to identify them properly because those identifying characteristics reveal what they are. Ducks walk. Trees don't. In fact, ducks have a distinct walk. They have a waddle. Maybe that's why they were chosen for this particular analogy. I don't know. But they have a particular way of walking that distinguishes them from other creatures. And something like a tree, even though it's alive, doesn't walk. Ducks also quack, and bears don't. The actions of ducks help us to recognize what they are. Now, you don't become a duck by waddling or quacking. Those characteristics identify ducks. They don't make ducks what they are. They don't transform someone who decides they want to be a duck into being a duck just because they take on and act a certain way or exhibit certain characteristics. You you can claim to be a duck all you want, but without those and other characteristics and without actually a fundamental transformation, you're not a duck no matter what you say. And the same is true with Christians. Many people claim to be Christians. And a person becomes a Christian through faith in Jesus Christ alone. But not everyone who claims to be a Christian, not everyone who professes faith in Jesus Christ, actually possesses faith in Jesus Christ. And here in James chapter 1, we've been looking through this, we've been looking through a series of messages at one paragraph of Scripture. A paragraph of scripture that talks about how Christians show their faith, how genuine Christians show genuine characteristics that belong to genuine Christians in their lives. Anyone can claim to be a Christian, but Christians, like ducks, display common characteristics that are observable and that help us, and especially in this context, especially what James is teaching us, They not only help us identify other Christians, they help us examine whether we are actually Christians or not. Christians have common observable characteristics. And the previous two messages in this series began identifying some of those characteristics from James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. This is the end of the longer paragraph But the end of that longer paragraph lays out for us the common characteristics, some of the common characteristics of Christians. Ducks do duck-like things, and so do Christians. Christians do certain things. That's how you know if you are one. That's how you know what other Christians are. And as we've studied this passage of Scripture, we've seen together the common characteristics of Christians. First, in verse 26, we saw in a previous message that Christians control what they say. Christians control what they say. Looking again at verse 26, and this is just by way of review, so we'll be quick. 
But verse 26 says, those who consider themselves religious, so there it is, there's the claim, there's the self-identifying with Christianity, and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues, deceive themselves. James says they're not Christians because Christians control what they say. That's the first characteristic of a Christian. Christians control what they say. Moving forward into verse 27, James gives us a second characteristic that's true of Christians. And that characteristic is this. Christians help people in need. Christians control what they say, verse 26. Christians help people in need. Verse 27 begins by telling us, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. And so James sets forth in this statement, what to look for in a person's life. The previous verse said a non-Christian can't control his tongue, and so the implication is a Christian will. That's characteristic one in verse 26, the tongue. Now here in verse 27, James is going to give us two more characteristics, and that second characteristic is described in this verse as to look after orphans and widows in their distress. This was the subject of the previous message in this series. And this is why I say Christians help people in need. Remember, orphans and widows were the most vulnerable people in the society in which James lived. They were the ones who, for, in, for no fault of their own, were often on the very edge of poverty, often on the very edge of starvation, and needed assistance from others to stay alive. James says a true Christian, because we have the love of God in our lives and our hearts, will see those needs and show up. When he says we are to uh, visit them in their affliction, that's what he means. He's saying we are to bring uh, assistance to the lives of those in need. And I told you that although orphans and widows, of course, are still included in those verses, in those words, that it also suggests really anyone who is in a need that we can help with is someone that we Christians are supposed to help. And so when we talk about the observable characteristics of a Christian, this passage tells us Christians control what they say and Christians help people in need. This morning we come to the final phrase of verse 27. And that final phrase gives us the third characteristic of Christians, as James wants to tell us. There are many more that other passages of Scripture talk about, but these are three that James wants us really to understand. And so that third characteristic is this. Christians resist worldliness. Christians resist worldliness. Look again with me at verse 27. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and, number three, to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And this is going to be the focus of the rest of this message. So the Bible tells us that Christians do certain things, and one of the things that Christians do is to resist worldliness. Now, resisting worldliness, this verse is going to show us, is an intentional act. Resisting worldliness, if you're a Christian, is an intentional act. And I get that from this phrase, to keep oneself, to keep oneself. That phrase, to keep oneself, is an intentional act. If you have to keep yourself from something, that's a decision that you made. And the reason that that decision was necessary is because it's, it's easy 
to let it happen. That's the point. When you say, keep yourself from doing this, the implication, and I think it's the clear implication that James is communicating, is that it's very easy to become worldly. And so let me give you an example. It's very easy for me to gain weight. Maybe that's just me. I expected more laughter right there, but that's better. Thank you. Maybe that's just me, but I think it's pretty common for human beings that it's very easy to gain weight. All you have to do, in case you were wondering, is just eat as much as you want of every food that you like, and you will gain weight. It's almost certain. It's easy to do, and with so much great food around us, there are many, many, many ways to fall into the kinds of behaviors that cause us to gain weight. It's very easy to gain weight. It's hard to keep yourself from gaining weight. And so if you're going to maintain your slim girlish figure, as a beloved professor of mine used to say, you're going to have to make an intentional choice about what you eat and don't eat and the amount of food you consume and the amount of food you refuse to consume. You're going to have to keep yourself from eating too much and from eating the kinds of things that cause you to gain weight. And so it is with worldliness. Worldliness, just like overeating, is easy for us to to slip into. By telling us that we need to keep ourselves from being polluted by the world in James 1.27, Scripture is telling us that it's very easy for us to become worldly. In fact, I would say this, every Christian, that's you, me, and everyone who professes the name of Christ, will become worldly if we don't take care and watch out for it. If we don't intentionally act to keep ourselves from becoming worldly, we will become worldly because it's that easy. And because it's that natural for us. And so keeping yourself from worldly describes a series of actions, a series of daily choices, a daily habit in terms of the way that you think. It's a conscious choice to be careful not to let the world change your thinking and conform you to the way that it thinks and the way that it behaves. When James tells us, that true religion keeps itself from the world. He's talking about an intentional act. But the second thing I would say about this phrase is that resisting worldliness is done because we want to become holy. That's the motivation. The motivation to resist worldliness for us Christians is the motivation to become holy like God is. And I get that from this phrase in verse 27 religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. That word polluted means defiled. It describes something that has been made unclean and possibly even damaged by its association with something else. Let me give you an example. Have you ever painted something and because what you were painting was small and maybe you're lazy like I am and don't, it's just easy. I'll just do it real quick. So you don't change clothes. You, you, You paint, but you keep wearing what you're wearing and you're saying, well, I'll be really careful 
while I do it, right? Have you ever tried this? Did it work? (laughs) It's very difficult to keep yourself from being splattered or dripped on by paint when you are painting. That's why people wear coveralls or change their clothes and put on something old. And that's because we want the clothes that we're wearing now to remain untainted by the paint. We want them to be unaffected by the paint that we're wearing. We want them set apart so that we can wear them out in public without somebody saying, look at that guy, he painted, right? So we set our, our clothes apart in a situation like that. That's what the word holy means. The word holy means to be set apart. And the Bible says God is set apart in many ways, but one of the key ways is he is set apart from sin. He is distinct from sin. God hates sin. And when you became a believer in Jesus Christ, when you put your faith in Christ, when God saved you by the grace of God, he pronounced you to be holy in his sight. He declared you to be holy in his sight. But he also put something new in you. He caused spiritual life to be born inside of you. And that spiritual life wants to be like him. Just like a child wants to be like his parents or her parents, so the The new person within wants to be like our Father God, who is holy. And so when James says pure religion is to keep yourself from being polluted by the world, he is alluding to the desire for holiness that is part of a genuine Christian's heart and walk with God. If you're a Christian, you want to be holy like God is. You want to be set apart from sin. You want the pollution of this world, not to stick to your life and to your character. That's why Christians resist worldliness. That's why a characteristic of people who truly know God is to keep ourselves from the worldliness around us. It's because we have a desire to become holy, just like God is holy. If we're going to resist worldliness, we have to know what it is and how it works. James does not get into that in this passage. And later on in the book, he resumes talking about worldliness, and he actually likens it to adultery. So we'll come to that later on in a later message. But if we're going to understand whether or not we have this characteristic of true Christians, if we're going to evaluate our faith in God and see if it's genuine or if we're deceiving ourselves, we need to know what worldliness is. And we need to look at our lives and see, am I becoming more worldly or am I becoming more holy? And so I want to take a big chunk of the rest of this message to talk about what worldliness is. The first thing I would say about worldliness is that worldliness is the operating system that godless people live by. It is the operating system that godless people live by. That phrase operating system is a computer metaphor, Every type of computer runs some kind of operating system. It runs some kind of software that describes the rules for how other software can run. If you have a Windows PC, Windows is your operating system. If you have a Mac, the Mac OS is your operating system. If you have an Android phone, Android is the operating system. And if you have an Apple phone, iOS is the operating system, all right? The operating system is the rules. It says what kind of software will and won't run on it and what that software can and can't do. Now, I think that's a good way to describe what worldliness is. Worldliness isn't 
one particular action or a list of particular actions. Rather, worldliness is a sort of set of rules, both some sort of written and some unwritten. It's the environment that says what's acceptable in the world and what is unacceptable in the world. In other words, worldliness is a word that describes how human beings who don't know God, and that's key. Okay, that's why I have the word godless in my description there. Worldliness is a description of how human beings who don't know God think, how they act, how they value things, and what they say is acceptable and unacceptable. In many ways, the word worldliness, as I'm using it here as an operating system, is sort of like the word culture. But it's not a culture like we think of in terms of um, an ethnic group. It's a culture that the whole world shares. Let me give you an example, maybe that will help you understand what I'm talking about. Every group of people has its own subculture, has its own culture. And if you work in a corporation, your corporation has a culture. It has a culture in the sense that there are rules. Rules that are written, but also rules that are unwritten. And everybody sort of either abides by those rules or they know they're in trouble or they're not doing right if they don't abide by those rules. Let me give you a more specific example. Let's say that your company, the place where you work, mandates that everyone start work at 9 a.m. Monday through Friday. That's the rule, okay? And that rule is designed to build a culture of people who show up on time for work. But let's say that in your company... Not the executives, not the owners, but the people, the the people who make up the company. Let's say that they have a habit of showing up at 9.05, 9.10, 9.15, or later. And before they actually go to their workstation and work, they have a habit of mingling together, maybe eating some donuts and drinking coffee, and then eventually, maybe around 9.30, people sort of start working. The company rules say work begins at 9, but the culture says something else. The culture has an unwritten rule. The culture says it's acceptable for people who work here to show up late and do what they want for a while before they start working. And worldliness in many ways operates exactly like that. Worldliness says it's acceptable, it's okay for us to do this or to be this way or to think this way. And so when we talk about what worldliness is, that's what I mean when I say it's an operating system that godless people live by. But it's also something else. I would say this, that worldliness is an alternative to God's will and ways. What is that operating system? It's another way of living. It's an alternative to God's will and God's ways. Worldliness is a way to live that is distinct from the way to live that is spelled out in Scripture, the way to live that was lived by Jesus Christ, the way to live that our Lord and our God says people ought to live. Worldliness says, here's another idea. And to understand the distinction between God's will and worldliness, we need to understand that God created us. And because he's our creator, he has the right to tell us how to live. And here's, the, here's a point that's often missed. 
not only is God's way of telling us how to live the right way, but it's the best way for us. If we lived according to the will and word of God, if we lived according to his commandments, humanity would be much better off. In other words, God created us and God set forth in his word an operating system that humanity should live by, that humanity is obligated to live by because we're accountable to God, our creator. Worldliness, though, rejects God's principles. It rejects God's commands. It rejects God's words. It rejects God's operating system and says, let's install this operating system instead. Let's take your hardware and run different software on it. Let's create our own rules and live our own way. Worldliness rejects God's word and what it says about how people should live. And worldliness tells humanity that we don't have to do what God says. In fact, worldliness then, I would say, goes back to the Garden of Eden because that's how this all began. In the beginning, the creator created us. He told us how to live. It wasn't until Satan came along and he's the Lord of worldliness. He's the one who's calling the shots. Satan came along to humanity and said, you will not surely die. Satan came along and questioned the word of God. Has God really said? And when human beings, when humanity, when Adam and Eve chose the lie that Satan told over the truth of God's word, humanity fell into sin, but we also started to operate a different way. We started to follow a a different set of code to use the computer analogy. We started to install a different operating system and live a different way. And so from the time that humanity fell into sin, we've been trying to make our own rules. We've been trying to redefine reality. We've been trying, I'm talking about we as a mass of humanity, to redefine what is right and wrong, all in opposition to God and his word. Humanity as a mass agrees with the human rules and values that I'm calling worldliness. Because we all share a fallen human nature. That's why this appeals to us. Our human nature naturally rebels against God and his word. And so that's why worldliness is so attractive. And that's why it seems like the default operating system for humanity. It is the default operating system for humanity, because we're under God's curse. And so since it's the default operating system, that means that's what most people are running. That's what most people are doing. Most people are following the rules of this world. They're making it up as they go along. And since the majority of the world is worldly, since the majority of people are doing worldly things, there is a comforting, appealing attraction to it for even those of us who are Christians. This is why we fall into worldliness if we don't intentionally keep ourselves from it. The Bible says that worldliness is actually a road. And that road leads to death and destruction. People think they can redefine everything and live their own way and be happy and be successful and get away with it. But the Bible says the operating system of humanity, worldliness, is leading people toward death and destruction. Proverbs 14, 12 says, There is a way that appears to be right, 
But in the end, it leads to death. That way is what we call worldliness. And Jesus said these words in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. Broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. A lot of people on that road, a lot of people running that code, a lot of people living according to that operating environment. But the end is going to be destruction. Now, worldliness can be constrained. It can't be solved in this life, but it can be constrained. But even though it is constrained at times, in other words, humanity is never as bad as it could be. Even though worldliness is constrained at times, it is always moving. It's always progressing away from God and away from his word. And let me give you an example. 50 years ago, cohabitation was not acceptable in our society. People may have done it, but they were not the mainstream. They were not the norm. People gossiped and whispered about people who lived together without the benefit of marriage. And of course, people have had sexual relations outside of marriage from almost the beginning, from the time of the fall of humanity. But for a time in various cultures, that's not been considered an acceptable way to live. But over time, let's say, I don't know how long, because it's been slowly progressing in this direction, but let's say 30 years ago, things changed. And instead of being somewhat of an outcast if you cohabitated without the benefit of marriage, people who did that became acceptable. It became another way of having a relationship with someone of the opposite sex. It became an acceptable way to live. Another choice on the shelf, so to speak, with marriage or with singleness. And the truth of the matter is that society, as it continues to progress away from the will of God and the word of God, not only looks at cohabitation as an acceptable alternative, but young people are more and more just doing it. They're cohabitating and not getting married at all. It's become almost the default option for younger people in our society. And so instead of being considered unusual or perverse or unacceptable in society, cohabitation is now an acceptable alternative lifestyle. The world, the operating system, has redefined personal choice in a way that allows it to be acceptable. We were told that as long as the people involved then were consenting adults, that's a key phrase in worldliness right now. We were told that as long as the people involved were consenting adults, as long as they were old enough to make a choice, and as long as they consented to the choice, then really any arrangement was okay. And so things moved on from heterosexual cohabitation to saying in our society that homosexuality is acceptable. Transgenderism now, is we're being told, is an acceptable alternative way to live. And so our, our society is never happy with the gains that it makes as it moves away from God. It's always moving further and further and further away from God. So it can be constrained at times, but it's always pulling away from the word and will of God. But that's just one example. Here's the truth about worldliness. Almost any sin you can think of is an expression 
of worldliness. And it's very easy for us to cluck our tongues at people who sin in ways that we haven't sinned. But it's much harder to see how their thinking and how their teaching and how their ideas have shaped and and molded our ideas and made things that we might not do personally seem more acceptable to us than it used to seem to us. And so, again, sexual sins, including promiscuity, homosexuality, transgenderism, all of these things, having a thruple is a word now, instead of a couple, you have more than one person. These are all ways of redefining God's will and God's word, and they're definitely expressions of worldliness, but so is materialism. And that's one that you and I are probably a little bit more or less sensitive to our thinking on. And not only is materialism worldly, so is envy. So is lust. So is any desire to live your life without accountability. So is any desire to live your life for yourself instead of serving others, instead of loving others. These are all expressions of worldliness, but ones that splatter us like the paint unintentionally. They change us. Unintentionally, they dilute the holiness of God that the Holy Spirit has stamped upon us. And so when we talk about worldliness, the Bible tells us that Christians keep ourselves from the world. Christians do certain things. There are certain characteristics that show up in a Christian's life. And one of those things is we resist the pull of worldliness on our lives. And so the point I want to bring to you this morning and the one I want to have us think about it here in the conclusion of this message is actually the big idea for today, and that is that you and I must resist worldliness as intentional acts of faith. If we're genuine Christians, we will keep ourselves from being polluted by the world, to use James' language. We have a desire for holiness in our lives that will cause us to make intentional choices because we trust God. And those intentional choices will be away from the rules and acceptable practices that this world sets forth. Here's a truth for us Christians. The world is constantly working on us, like a, like a river running down the, a stone in it and smoothing it out and constantly working it over. The world is constantly working us over to become more worldly. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that phrase, do not conform to the pattern of this world, has been translated loosely by others. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. I really like that analogy because that's what worldliness tries to do to us. It tells us, here's the mold. Here's what we've said is acceptable in society. Here's the operating system, the code that you should be running. Conform to it. And not only does it tell us to conform to it, but it intentionally does things that wear us down and try to, without us even realizing it, fit into that mold that the world has set for us. 
And so that means you and I are constantly under pressure. We belong to God. We want to be holy. We want to keep ourselves from the world, but we live in the world. And that means we are constantly under pressure. The people around you, your friends and neighbors, definitely the non-Christians, but even the Christians who are worldly, are exerting some influence on you. They're putting some of that pressure on you, whether you realize it or not, to conform to the pattern of this world. So the people around us are putting pressure on us. Our education system is putting pressure on our kids to conform to the pattern of the world around us. Our government is putting pressure on us to conform to the pattern of the world around us and some of the legislation that's currently being considered may force us to either conform to the pattern of the world around us or pay the price. So the people around us, our education system, our government, our entertainment choices, song lyrics are trying to conform us to the pattern of this world. The storylines and plots and movies and novels and television shows. And I could go on and on like this. When I was a kid, I was told those were what worldliness is. Worldliness is a style of music. It's a, it's a medium of, of media, like going to movies. That's what worldliness is. That's not what worldliness is. Worldliness is something else, but worldliness does use those things to try to wear down your resolve, to try to change your mind away from holiness, to being accepting of the sinful world around us. Remember that our text again says this, James chapter 1, verse 27. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. If we belong to Christ, that's what we'll do. That's the characteristic. It's not how you become a Christian. It's what Christians do. And so if you're a Christian, because it's very easy for us to slip into letting the world change our thinking, let me urge you as a Christian to resist worldliness as an intentional act of faith. But how do you do this? How do you resist the pull of the world in your life? The answer is right here in this larger paragraph we've been studying together. Remember that we've been looking the last few weeks at James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. But James 1, 26 and 27 are the end. They're a subparagraph in a much larger unit that goes back to verse 19. The paragraph we're studying is James 1, 19 through 27. And that paragraph tells us that we as Christians are to receive God's word. We're not to talk back about it. We're not to react in anger to it. We're to receive it. And then James says, if you receive God's word, don't just hear it, put it into practice in your life. Let it change the way you think, and then let it change the way you act. That's what God's word does for us. So resisting worldliness comes down to letting God's word change our thinking, our will, our character. It takes repeated exposure. Remember the the image of a mirror When we look in the mirror of God's word, it shows us how worldliness has dripped on us, has rubbed off on us, has conformed us into its image. The question is, are we going to take off the painted clothes and put on holiness again? Or are we going to walk away and say, I'm a good Christian, even though worldliness is all over us? 
It takes repeated exposure to God's word, not only reading it, but thinking about what it means and putting it into practice in our life. That's how we keep ourselves from being polluted by the world. That's what God's word does. Romans 12, 2, which I quoted a minute ago, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's what God's word does. It transforms a person by renewing that person's mind in scripture. And if I were to isolate one verse in our paragraph, James 1, 19 through 27, that really tells us how to resist the, the pressure of this world, it would be verse 25, which says this, but whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do it, that person, they will be blessed in what they do. That's what James is getting at. It's God's word that will keep you from being polluted by the world. That's how you resist worldliness. You do it by being changed by the word of God. This is a characteristic of Christians. Christians resist the drift of the world. Is that true of you? Or has your resolve, your definition of what's right and wrong, your definition of what's acceptable and unacceptable, been conditioned by the thinking and teaching and preaching of the world around us? Christians do certain things. And one of the things that we do is we resist worldliness and we do it as an intentional act of faith. If you are convicted by this and want to look at your life and how to resist worldliness in your life, you need to dive into God's word and do it on a regular basis. You need to think about your life and what it says, what God's word says about it and let God's word set the operating system for how you think and what you will and how you live. That's an intentional act of faith.